So it's about uh about midday uh where you are right now, right? Yeah, it is. It is. No beers yet. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's uh it's always beer thirty for somebody, you know. <laughs> totally agree. <laughs> so how you doing today, Ben? Uh good, good. We've been in uh in lockdown for a bit, so with COVID, so it's been uh, beer o'clock all day, every day. when we look at rich and how we define rich, I think is really important as well. And having billions of dollars is, you know, is all well and good, but at what cost did you get that, those billions of dollars, you know, who else had to sacrifice themselves for you to get that? So I love the idea of considering wealth as both money as far as being comfortable and ethical earning of money, as well as time freedom as well. So we can joyously do what we want. We can contribute to other people by outsourcing work and having other people work with us, but also have enough so that we can just have a really great life without stress. You know, they, when we look at um, Maslow's hierarchy uh, and people say that, you know, money doesn't buy happiness. Well, the, the research says it does. Uh, if you look at someone who is earning $100,000 a year, they have many, many less stresses than $20,000 a year, mm -hmm. you know? But then we see money doesn't buy more happiness when you get to $300,000 a year because the difference between earning $300,000 a year and half a million dollars a year is not particularly much. And then you get higher and higher, it's just a number. You know, it loses meaning once we have our basic needs secured and taken care of. So a little bit of money buys happiness. A lot of money can buy more problems. Hmm. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> so, yeah, so the, the, the concept of unlimited wealth, I, I tend to um, not agree with. But uh, empowering someone or helping someone or uh, doing it myself, working yourself doing what you love so that you can have that time freedom to spend with your family to have that financial freedom to enjoy your time stress-free with your family and you know grow as a person and do all of those things that you want to while still having a meaningful career i go that's the ultimate man uh you need to put some of that on the t-shirt i think that <laughs> I think that uh, that's one of those quotables that, you know, people will talk about, you know, for the next hundred years or so. But ladies and gentlemen, I am your host, the Land of a Legend, a.k.a. Big T. And thank you for checking out this latest episode of the I Can't Make This Up podcast. You have been listening to the uh, the righteous dictations of my next guest, <laughs> Ben Sorensen, who's joining me uh 
and this afternoon for him and this evening for me uh from australia ben thank you for joining me today uh it's an it's an absolute pleasure or, or maybe maybe we should label them as just uh ramblings uh <laughs> 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 ramblings rambling is 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 a uh, something you know uh people would consider a person who jumped on a sump box they soapbox and uh decided to spew even though sometimes it's factual so you know i, I always associate ramblings with you know idiocy you know I, well do you know what <laughs> uh the, the show is but young <laughs> <laughs> What was that? What was that line? Um, it is uh, better to be thought a fool than open your mouth and remove all doubt. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so uh, Ben, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to my audience? Um, I am Australian. If the accent didn't give it away, uh, I'm a, a comedian and uh, you know media personality here in Australia. I do lots of voiceovers, uh, lots of shows. And, you know, I, I just really, really love uh, the world in which I live. And uh, that's, that sounds pretty blasé, but I actually enjoy thinking a lot about life, uh, the world and the deeper aspects of things. And that's partly where I get inspiration for, you know, my comedy, my shows and everything else. Because I think first and foremost, uh, we should be consciously trying to improve ourselves, not only for us, but for our community and working out how we can be consciously kind to the world. And it's not perfect. I fail quite a lot. <laughs> but the intent is, how can I be better every single day I wake up? So uh, that's that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> I... Uh... I wish that more people had that mindset, but, you know, unfortunately, when you don't have control over yourself, how could you possibly, you know, be in the position to even articulate thoughts that would help, a you know, the next man or even your son or cousin or brother or whoever, you know, I think that everyday internal struggles eat people up. And, you know, without acknowledging those struggles to yourself, let alone somebody else or somebody that cares about you, is what causes, you know, turmoil that you see on social media or TV every day. I find it really interesting because when I, when I look at me and the short journey that I've gone on in the 30-something years that I've been on this planet, mm -hmm. I go... Are all of those dramas or things that we get really upset with just distractions? Are they us creating external drama to avoid us from looking at who we really are? Because that's pretty scary, looking inside yourself and going, actually, do you know what? I was really unkind in that situation, or I really made a mistake there. I need to own that, or I need to... Um, work out why that happened and how I can not do that again or how can I be better and actually openly and honestly look at how you are. I think a lot of people um, prefer to create that drama or point fingers at other people in order to disguise what's happening for them. 
And sometimes that's a coping mechanism. There's a lot of trauma in the world. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that self-awareness is really one of those key factors. And, you know, letting somebody know or letting themselves know that, you know, you know, I may be going through life every day, but I don't think I'm living it right. And, you know, what's right for me may not be for you, but in a general consistence, you know, everyone doesn't have to fit in a certain box, but, you know, can we all get along is a statement I don't think anybody should disagree with. Because if you do, then, yeah, buddy, you're the problem. Not only you're the problem, you don't even realize it. And you're causing everybody else to have a bad time here during their, you know, somewhat short existence they may have on this planet, you know? Mm. It's funny when you when you actually start looking at it. And just, just to preface, I, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. These are just my, my musings <laughs> and my anecdotal experience from my, my uh, readings and what I've seen and experienced so far. But, you know, I find it fascinating the uh, pace with which we have developed or, or grown our modern life, that it's almost really challenging for anyone to be part of the world, but also have that quiet time to reflect. And we see the movement of... Um, you know, yoga and meditation and mindfulness and all of those things, which are really, really helpful. But I find that given the pace of life, it's almost a greater challenge to take that time out now than it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Do you think that comes from people growing in age? Because I sit back and think sometimes like, you know, how my mentality was when I was a kid and how the smallest things used to set me on fire. And then now, you know, things that irk me are stuff that nine times out of 10, I can't control, you know? So in your experience, you know, what has been some of the biggest changes you've seen in people, whether it be good or bad over, you know, the past 10 years or so? Look, I think it's, uh, if we liken it to a research study, mm -hmm. so you're walking through life and your test group when you're younger is much smaller because you've had less experiences. So you don't really have enough data to make proper decisions. So you do fly off the handle at things or you don't see the full picture or you don't understand what's happening because your test group of data is too small. And as you get older, you have more experiences, you talk to more people, you've made a lot of bad decisions, and hopefully you've made some good ones as well. And you've, your picture, the size of your picture, the size of your data set increases. And with more data, more information, better decisions are made. And I think partly that's why, as you get older, if you're into you know, self-assessing and looking at your life and personal growth and all of that stuff, uh, I think that's why a lot of us tend to mellow with age because we go, you know what, that's really not going to change my life because I've been through that 15 times before or I've seen that, I've seen that before, it's not new, it's not a surprise, it's not a shock, you know? 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's how we mellow. Uh, that's why we mellow as we get older to a certain extent. But then there's also uh, there's a couple of uh, older people that I know that are really cranky pants all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I think to a certain extent, that's also those people who don't wish to self-assess at all <laughs> and continue to be constantly surprised by the things that they see over and over and over and over again. You know, so I I think that uh, how we change and grow and evolve as humans is different on our path. But I think as a as a as a, as an aggregate, I think having more experiences makes us uh, more gives us more context for the life in which we live, which enables us to have proportionate responses. Which is why we were talking before about traveling. Mm-hmm. And how people that travel tend to be uh, more well-rounded because they have crammed a lot of those really different experiences into a shorter amount of time by going out into the world and traveling around and, and immersing themselves in different cultures and different experiences so that they have that bigger perspective. And there's a lot of self-help books that are written about perspective as well, saying that you know if I wasn't on the planet, the planet would still turn, life would still go on. So is the fact that my latte that's cold, is that really that big a deal? No, it's not. Get another one. You know, is the fact that I'm two minutes late to something that big a deal? No, no, the world's going to keep turning. Nothing's going to change. So putting things in context, I think, is really important. And sometimes context is really, really challenging to see inside our own head. Because brains are very tricky things. And that self-talk, particularly if we get into negative spirals, is really, really hard to break sometimes. And we see feelings that we have are very, very strong at times as well. And, you know, how I think of feelings is wonderful indicators, poor decision makers. So the idea of feelings... Let's say I, I'm, uh, I'm a cave, cave person wandering through the jungle with my club going, oh, my God, look at this. Isn't it great? And then a you know, saber-toothed tiger jumps on me or you know, is over in the bushes there. So I see it. I get a huge adrenaline rush, and then I run away. Boom. Saved my life. Amazing. We don't really need that as much anymore, yet we still have those instinctive reactions, but they don't particularly serve us well. So by understanding that the point of that fright is to alert us to the world around us, to whatever the the thing is, to draw our attention to it, and then we try and use the rest of our brain to go, okay, do I need to run away from this? Do I need to work through this? Is it real? Is it not real? Let my giant logical brain work it out now that my emotions have flagged that I should probably look at this and think about it. You know, when you mentioned caveman, for some reason the thought popped into my head. Do you really think the first caveman to invent fire invented it? You know, you know, for some reason I could imagine like, you know, lightning striking a tree and he's like, Oh man, <clears throat> let me take this back to the wife. Look what I made. 
Or he took it back to sell it to to sell his fire stick to someone else mm-hmm. to take home to their wife, and then he's gone home to his wife and gone, "Hey, look at all these really cool rocks I've got for you. <laughs> these are like the best rocks." We we do have you know uh, generations and generations of people claiming other people's ideas, so I don't think it's not possible. But you never know, you know? Yep, that's like the, the joke. If you have a Tesla car and it gets stolen, is it an Edison? <laughs> <laughs> that's so true. That's so true. <laughs> so I got to ask you something. Um, you know, uh, looking into uh, your background and you know um you know seeing everything you know uh what type of person you are and what you're about um how did comedy um become something that you do as part of uh who you are as ben sorensen like was it a a certain video or a certain piece of uh content or a person that you saw that you know struck a chord with you and made you you know want to give it a try look i think that uh comedy is an intense trauma response that's cheaper than therapy. Um, and I think that, I think for, for me, I think my autism plays into com- the comedy work that I do because a lot of what I do is observational crowd work. Mm-hmm. So part of that is going, okay, well, I see the world differently and other people tend to find that funny. And aside from that, there is a certain joy about laughing with people no matter how bad the world is if you can laugh it's not as bad as it is if you don't so that is an inherent joy and a wonderful skill that i will be developing my entire life is to try and bring uh intelligent educated joy to people as often as possible and i think comedy is a wonderful tool Mm-hmm. Not only to make people laugh, but to appropriately make people think. If we highlight things that people know are uncomfortable or wrong in a joke, they're going to laugh. But then later on, they're going to go away and think about that and go, why did I laugh at that? <laughs> you know, that's not funny at all. That's not right. <laughs> yep. But you laughed at it. Why? <laughs> you know, and we and we see a lot of. Uh, really amazing female comedians mm-hmm. get up there and tell all of these, you know, really hilarious stories. And then you go away and go, wow, that's heavy. <laughs> or you go, okay, so, you know, I am in a very privileged position as a white male here. Or, you know, a whole heap of different things that over time enable you to break down those barriers and connect with people and understand a different point of view. Like in in Australia, we uh, still unfortunately treat our First Nations people very poorly, and there are some really really amazing stories being told through comedy by our First Nations people, our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, and it's really wonderful that we're starting to hear and see more of them in the mainstream 
to let those stories and those experiences and those journeys um, permeate our consciousness as an ignorant, largely white society. And for everyone in the mainstream, it's really interesting to see the other side of the interactions that, that you would have. And that's where comedy comes in, and that's the magic of it. Um, I also curate a venue at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival each year. And when I'm programming that, it's really easy to go, let's just fill the venue with a whole heap of uh, white guys telling stories about having kids because they're of that age. <laughs> you know. And then you go, okay, well, that's just four, we four weeks of the same act over and over and over again with a different, you know, slightly different human in there. But I think one of the magical things about being able to curate a venue is I can get a variety of stories and I can give space to a variety of stories that may not have had the opportunity to have that space for whatever reason. And that's been a personal learning curve for me is when I curate a venue, I actually watch every show. I'm very hands-on and I'm there every second there is something on stage. So. For me, it's been about seeing the variety of these shows over and over and over. So last last year, I think I saw uh, just every show in my in my venue like ten or fifteen times, and seeing it once is great. But after fifteen times, you really start to get into the content, and you really start to understand the mechanics of those jokes, the mechanics of the stories. And I think that um, what more venues should do, particularly in comedy, is provide that variety. So if you go in to see your favourite artist or your favourite comedian, always stay for the warm-up act or the show after or even the super early show because you'll get that variety of stories. And we talked about, um, you know, before living in your own head too much. Mm. And if you don't hear or see any other stories, you don't know there's anything different. But by going out there and consciously seeing comedy or seeing a variety show so that you can get some perspective from those different stories, I think is amazing. And that's one of the, the huge things that I love about comedy is the range of people that are telling their stories honestly and cleverly so that we can be entertained and educated at the same time. Some of the uh, best comedians that I ever watched or, you know, been a fan of, you know, made me laugh at something I shouldn't be laughing at publicly, but also, you know, uh, gave me a little tidbit about life or a piece of information I wasn't aware of, you know, so that skill that you do with that tool is something that you hone over, you know, a certain amount of time. I think it was Jerry Seinfeld that says, you know, however many years you've been in comedy, that's how old you are in comedian years, you know? So if you're a 10 year old, you know, you know, you got the rust knocked off, but you usually hit that stride, you know, a few years down the road, you know, mm. in my experience, you know? So, um, and that's you the know, same as a, as a musician as well. 
So you yeah. see a lot of new, newer musicians, and I think it's about finding, in music we call it about uh, like finding your voice. When you get to a stage with your skill level, you actually find out, no, this is my thing, this is what I do, this is how I do it, and I'm comfortable and solid enough with that that I can now dance, weave, duck, and play with it, which is lovely for the audience to watch and experience. But also as a performer, that's where that, final like 20 10 20 percent of your skill that you'll spend the rest of your life honing so 80 percent of uh 20 percent of your energy to get 80 percent of the way and the other 80 percent of your energy to get that final 20 percent and there's a lot of great examples out there of people who have honed that skill and they are masterful to watch in the arts be it music or you know uh painting or sculpture or theater or burlesque, or comedy, or, you know, anything like that, you know? Even if we relate it to, um, you know, some of the hip-hop and rap artists, some of those guys freestyle like it's, like, just, it's insane the talent they have. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Yeah, I wish I was, you know, well, you can't be great at everything. So some people have natural oh. talent. And then they put the hard work and effort behind that that makes them great, you know, that makes what they do that you look at as amazing, effortless, mm. you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And taking yourself out of that comfort zone and experiencing other people's mastery in areas that you are not a master, I think is awe-inspiring. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, when I first started my show, you know, I didn't know how I would evolve or how I would grow. I just know where I wanted to be. And, you know, the nervousness that I had, it took a few months and my production has stepped up immensely, you know, and now that I've realized that, you know, it's a it's a numbers, not a numbers game, but it's a repetition game. So now. You know, I got to get my reps up. I got to do this until, you know, not only am I, you know, uh, known, but, you know, I'm recognized for, you know, me making it look effortless, like those, you know, great musicians, those great artists, those great performers, you know? Absolutely. I just find that that repetition, really interesting and we, we you know we've just had the olympics in tokyo mm-hmm. and it's fascinating to see like a the, the high i think i was watching the high jump and you only you only see them for like 15 minutes when they're doing their thing and you go wow that's amazing but then you almost don't have the ability to understand how many times they've done that or how many times they've fallen, or how many times they've, you know, been to the gym to, you know, build certain muscle groups, or how long they've been in physio because they hurt themselves because they pushed themselves too hard. You know, that whole journey, I think we overlook a little bit in modern society, and we focus a lot on that end point. And I think there's a lot of joy, and there's also uh, a lot of respect that's earned through doing, as you say, the repetitions. 
And I think a lot of industries we're missing the honing of those skills. So we have this knowledge gap. Technology enables us to do a lot of stuff with very little skill. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of industries, we're losing a lot of that, uh, that fine, masterful knowledge as we go on. So as you say, doing the repetitions really makes a difference. Learning more and being passionate about something and wanting to learn as much as possible about it, I think is just a wonderful endeavor and good for the human race. I totally agree with that. So Ben, let me ask you, uh, have you done much traveling in your life? Uh, I was set to do a lot more and then uh, COVID kind of <laughs> killed it. <laughs> <laughs> so right now I'm traveling between my lounge room, the kitchen, <laughs> the uh, bedroom and occasionally the backyard. <laughs> okay, so you, you I got my little passport for around the house and I uh, got a stamp in each room. <laughs> so you got free miles now. You got endless miles from constantly <laughs> No, uh, look, before corona, uh I was uh on a plane every second week flying around doing shows. And it was really wonderful. Most of my flights and most of my travel have been around Australia. Mm. And uh, it's, uh, as, as I suppose for a lot of people in the US, it is as well, um, like internal or domestic commuting for work isn't such a crazy idea. So I used to do quite a lot of that. Um, I, I just adore traveling overseas as well. Uh, and I, still fondly remember uh, you know my time gallivanting around paris not being able to speak french uh <laughs> should have seen that coming <laughs> uh but I, I still had a great time um i spend a lot of time in uh germany when i'm overseas as well because i find uh i just really love the history and the journey that the German people have gone on, as in from, you know, the early, early days through the whole World War II thing and how mm. they've evolved through that uh, is, is just really wonderful. And, it's, and they've also got really great food there, which is kind of nice too. Um, and speak, speaking of food, I also quite enjoy Ireland as well, okay. um, spending a heap of time there. Uh, the beer is really good there uh, and uh, very, very funny people and wonderful storytelling, which I absolutely adore. So, yeah, um, I, I have been to the States, though, which I did. I did enjoy. I was a um, uh, I did down south. So I went to Nashville okay. for, for CMA week with one of the shows that I was doing. And I am constantly disappointed now by every piece of fried chicken that I have <laughs> compared to some of the chicken that I've had in Nashville. And I just go like, I don't know what you do to it there. Don't want to know. Just feed it to me. So good. So good. And, uh, and biscuits. You know, I didn't, I didn't know what a biscuit was. Like we have, we have English biscuits here, which are like cookies. Yeah. And then we have um, English muffins, which are like uh, round 
bready things, like light, fluffy, bready things, you know. And then we've got scones here, which are slightly more dense things, and they're normally a sweet thing. And then I have a go to McDonald's and they go, Do you want biscuits? And I'm going, Why, the, why would I want a biscuit with that? I don't understand. Who are you? <laughs> yeah. And then I had it and I went, I need some gravy with this. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I, I normally, I, I love eating my way through everywhere I go because I think food and culture and stories and love and passion all come together when you share a meal yeah you know breaking bread is a universal term you know it opens doors for communication exchange of you know stories passions you know ups and downs everything but, you know but not when you're buying biscuits from mcdonald's like <laughs> out, out, outside of fast food <laughs> outside of fast food Oh yeah. man, McDonald's man. I um, I used to love fast food. It's like in the, in the past three or four years, um, it just doesn't taste the same, you know. And whether it be me evolving as a person, you know, and I'm like connecting the memories with taste, but I can just tell, you know, it's just it's not the same, you know. Whether yeah. they switch to different vendors or they got a new chef i don't know but you know i can remember a time where you know i would wait in that drive-through line for 10 to 15 minutes even though it's supposed to be fast food because i know once i got that bag i'm happy i was mad five minutes ago but i got my bag now so i'm happy <laughs> you know but well, there's worse things you could have in a bag that makes you happy <laughs> <laughs> man you ain't never lied oh, um, i think that um now as as an adult like when i was younger i used to eat a lot more fast food as well and that's because you know i was always running off from a to b and i'd eat in the car while i was driving from one show to another and you would do crazy stuff like that or you'd finish at two in the morning and it was the only place that was open um but i think now uh I'm one of those people that will have a, I always carry snacks with me. <laughs> so uh, I don't need to, you know, stress so much or I'll wait till I get home or I'll actually consciously go out there and find a small business that is really great at something wherever I am. Because mm -hmm. I think that keeps the variety of food that we get to eat alive. That also keeps the family that owns that alive and I get something different in every town. And I, I really like that. Whereas I think the fast food experience is largely homogenous, like McDonald's anywhere in the world, a Big Mac's going to be pretty much the same, mm -hmm. you know, whereas if you look at uh, going to a little milk bar or a little uh, restaurant or something, then uh, like we're very blessed with that here in, in, in Melbourne and Australia as well. I can watch the food channel and anything they talk about on there, I can go on my phone and go, all right, I'm going to have a Poe sandwich today. Where am I going to get that from? I don't know. And I look and, oh, there's a place 500 metres down the road from me. I'm just going to go get me the sandwich that I just watched on TV. 
you know, not as good as if I got it locally, mm-hmm. but there is a, a family that has emigrated or immigrated um, and brought the flavours of their home with them. And I think there is nothing more special than them setting up their own piece of home to share those flavours with the new country they're in or the new space they're in or the new town they're in. So I like supporting, you know, that sort of stuff when I go out and about into the world. When I used to travel in my 20s, um, I used to buy a shot glass from every city I went to. I would buy two. I would buy one for myself and then one for, you know, one of my friends, you know, as a, uh, you know, just a tradition or whatever, you know. Yeah. One time I had, I think I had been to 14 states and then uh, my ex got mad at me and broke all of them. So, you know. (laughs) No, what do you you have your wheatgrass in then? (laughs) Uh, Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) i uh all right weight grass yeah 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 some places (laughs) you know i i saw something on youtube uh months ago and then a friend of mine's uh told me that you know there's a a cereal bar um in dc which is not too far from where i am now and I thought he was joking until he told me the name and I looked it up and I said, people are actually paying an establishment to eat cereal at as a, as a meal. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Is it like boxed cereal or is it like, Oh, it's, it's like fancy. They got it like in these tubes, you know, that they, I guess they uh, pull a thing and then it comes down in a little fancy bowl and they probably charge you like you know five bucks a bowl or something like that but i'm just like a cereal paying bar the, paying for the experience now there is uh, i i hear your story about crazy cereal and i raise you a seven dollar glass of water so on the gold coast I, uh, a, a friend of mine is living on the gold coast which is um there's a it's the Gold Coast is interesting, okay? So it's um if fires ever went through the Gold Coast, most of the people would melt. Mm. So there's a lot of beautiful people, there's a lot of plastic surgeons up there. I suppose that's kind of similar to like California, I guess. Yeah. Um <laughs> and it's probably where the cereal bar is. And they have a seven dollar glass of water at one of these places, and it comes with rose petals floating on top. <laughs> And it was purified by the light of the full moon. <laughs> and it is, uh, what did they say? It's, uh, it's, has, it's been, uh, it has a little pH test with it. So you can see that it's super alkaline and, you know, it's got special bubbles in it and all of this other stuff. And it was blessed by a Tibetan monk on the side of a mountain somewhere. <laughs> and it's $7. And you look around because it comes in a separate, a different glass. And you look around and you go, how many of you people are (laughs) getting this $7 water? You've all got the glass. (laughs) What are you doing? Go to a supermarket or the tap. (laughs) (laughs) Terrible. So, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Uh, But then who's the fool? The people buying it? 
or the people selling it, you know? I mean, if, if you can create a market for something like that and people feel good, I go, well, fair enough. But yeah, I, 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 you know, I only bought three, so it's fine. <laughs> oh man. The, the, the first one, yeah, the first one didn't, did you weren't too sure. So you tried it again and it was like, okay, all right. I think I know what everyone's talking about, but let me just make sure. And then you got the yeah. third one. <laughs> yeah. I just had to look cool for everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> that that's something you you buy on the first date to impress somebody you, you're not too sure about you know you know this and this is the other thing as well uh if you impress someone and go out of your way on the first date is that not setting them up with unrealistic expectations oh yeah most definitely yeah totally so uh i wear uh like uh sweatpants and <laughs> uh you know a t-shirt with some soup stains on it for, yeah. Uh, yeah. Realistic. So then on a second date, uh, they go, huh, he's not as bad as I thought. So the only problem I have is getting to the second date. <laughs> getting, getting out of the first date to the second date is one of life's biggest challenges, I guess. <laughs> Although, when we, th- when we think about it, it's same as friends or any other relationship, fail hard, fail early. So if you know it's not a match and you've been really open and you've talked about it, totally okay to be kind and be friends and move on. Because there's nothing worse than trying to make something work for 10 years and then going, you know what, maybe probably shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, isn't that the definition of insanity? Uh, what? What, being married? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, being married to the wrong person. Yes, some some would definitely agree with that. Not all, but just a, just 98%, that's all, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even the concept of marriage, I think, is really different these days as well. I mean, once upon a time, that was a... That was a thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas now it's, you know, I like the idea of having a long-term partner in my life that can leave at any time because I want people to be in my life because they want to be there, mm-hmm. not because they are financially bound or legally bound to be there. You know? So we can so we both work on the relationship and we both work on, you know, what we want and how we grow. And that's for friendships as well as, um, you know, intimate personal relationships and, you know, all sorts of other stuff. Yeah, I think that a lot of people don't understand that until they, they're already in. They think that marriage is just like love will love will make us grow. Love will keep us together or, you know, the fact that, you know, one of them or both of them are providers is all they need when it's 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 work you know when people say marriage is work yeah. i you know I, I look at people who who have been in relationships for you know five plus years that aren't married and it's just as much work so with anything you have to put that you have to care enough to put the effort into something if you want to make that happen and 
be continuous and grow and evolve into, you know, you know, what you want to consider bliss, you know? Mm. Nothing, nothing easy uh, tends to be lasting or good. Everything takes work. I think there's a certain amount of peace that comes with accepting that concept that it's going to be work to be on my own. It's going to be work with someone else. It's going to be work if I'm employed by someone else. It's going to be work if I work for myself. Everything takes effort and everything uh, and our successes are sometimes a result of effort. Sometimes they're just a result of nepotism, but... (laughs) Man, uh, those bells never rang truer than, you know, a typical American company, you know, places where either either you work for the boss or you're just another number. And, and by mm-hmm. that term, I mean, either you're in the group where, you you know, you follow exactly what this person does, and then that'll put you in the position to become one of those guys, the go-to guy, the ass mm-hmm. man, you know, the 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 next person up. And then you got people who have their own opinions that would rather, you know, stay a number and, you know, maintain their individuality than to, you know, be that ass man and have, basically have their identity stripped away because, they think that that's the way to succeed in life, and no, that's not. But then, what we see is workplaces become like schoolyard microcosms, <laughs> and we have uh, a lot of people that are managers that have no skill or education in managing people, and then it becomes an extension of themselves, and you end up with some pretty toxic workplaces. You know, I look at the some of the working conditions in America compared to Australia and we're horrified. There is no way we would allow people to work in a lot of the places that are over there for, you know, lower paid workers or entry level jobs. There is no way we would allow that to happen here because it's not a livable wage. They're not safe, fair or livable conditions. So why would you want to knowingly torture your staff day in, day out? How cruel must you be to know that you've got staff working there 30 hours a week that can't pay their bills because you don't pay them enough? You know, how horrible must you be when you drive away and you, you know, your Maserati or your Ferrari as a boss? Well, you know that famous term, the rich get richer, right? They can't stay rich if they're paying fair wages. <laughs> well, you know, there's a uh, the look, McDonald's in the States is a wonderful example, saying that if they upped the rate of pay for, I think it was McDonald's, please someone correct me if I'm wrong. Um, if they up the rate of pay to a livable wage in the States, uh, everyone's saying, oh, the world will end. It's terrible. We can't afford to pay people like that. We won't be able to afford our food anymore. Worked out to be about uh, eight, 8 to 10 cents per burger it would cost more to pay all of the McDonald's staff livable wages. And I go, everybody's talking about how we shouldn't pay uh, 
entry-level workers a livable wage because it will drive the price up of burgers. But no one is saying, I wonder if the CEO needs to be paid $35 million a year. So I think one of the conversations that we need to have when we're looking at employment and work and stuff isn't minimum wage, it's maximum wage. And there's a few schools of thought out there that are saying that people at the top tend to be a bit greedy. And as we talked about before, more money doesn't equal more happiness. It's just a number on a page to them. So the the how they treat people, it's all in a spreadsheet. However, narcissistic personal greed is a thing. So... What if we said that your lowest paid worker has to be a ratio or a a proportion of your highest paid worker? So if you wish your paycheck to go up as the CEO, then you have to increase the wage of your lowest paid worker because that distance can be no greater than X. So then we start seeing a mechanism by which businesses can go, okay, well, I really hate people and I want my staff to suffer, so I'm not going to pay them more and I'm not going to pay myself more. Or insanely narcissistic people that go, yeah, I want to pay myself more, so I'm going to give these guys a bit more so I can take more. So using using a, sorry, developing a system that works a little bit better. So there's a few really interesting schools of thought. We have we had a case with one of the banks here where the lowest paid, they had the largest difference between the lowest paid worker and highest paid worker out of any Australian business. And the CEO that year walked away with $49 million uh, for his work, plus shares, plus bonuses, plus, plus, plus. And, you know, the entry, because we have minimum wage laws here. So that's, uh, what are we at, like 25, uh, $20, $25 an hour here, you know. And again, we look at the cost of fast food here, not that much different to anywhere else. It's a little bit cheaper in the States, but not that much different. So why is it that we have ingrained in our whole capitalist employment process that we have to, in order to be successful, make sure that our staff lose. So it goes from a point where you go, how can I win? How can I win and you lose? And then the next stage is, I don't care if I win. How can I just make sure you lose? And I think that's a really dangerous path to be going down. Yeah. And there's also, and there's also lots of data saying that if you pay staff well, they're more productive and they work better and they have less health issues and they have less time off. You know, there's a whole heap of studies there, yet that scientific information, which has been proven in many different countries, many different ways, many different, many different industries, doesn't filter down because we have these um, horrible ego-based managers and business owners that think that this is how we've always done it. We need to pay our staff as little as possible and look at us, aren't we great? Man, that to, to get into that, that mindset and to 
actually dig deep into making that change is a can of worms that you and I couldn't do personally. But totally. if we had a majority, like 51%, not even 51, at least 49% of that particular population, you know, thinking the same way and want to do things and, you know, want to make that change in it, it's possible. You know, mm-hmm. I, I came to the realization that I can't get analytical with it because, you know, I could sometimes be biased when it comes to, you know, large corporations and their decision making. So, you know, they're like CEOs or people in power who they have to, you know, detach themselves and look at it from that perspective of numbers because they can't be the person that makes the company go if they're always putting their, you know, their heart on their sleeve and considering the next man. So you have to have that, you know, that killer mentality in order to keep the driving force going. But the catch 22 is you end up, you know, hurting the person at the bottom from you being the type of boss that they need, but or the type of boss that they want, but not the type of boss that they need. You know, see, I think I think we see that as a either or you can either have killer mentality and hurt everyone or be kind, caring and broke. And there's actually with data. Knowledge, education. There's a way that uh, you can be successful in business and still not disrespect uh, staff as well. There's nothing that says you need to have an a killer mentality to be successful in business. And this is one of the uh, false accepted wisdoms that as a society we're taught. You have to be hard, you have to be horrible, you have to embody all of the skills of toxic masculinity in order to be successful in business. Now there's um, a lot of businesses that I work with now that I've chosen to work with because they are really successful and they are also consciously kind and also make a profit and also have happy staff. And what, what what they have found is their staff turnover is next to zero because once staff are in there, they're happy, they want to stay. So they don't need to spend a fortune on retraining or upskilling or shadowing new staff. They're, um, they know their staff really well. They work really well. They know what they're doing. They're very happy. They're paid enough. So the system just keeps productively ticking over. And because they're paid well, they have a greater investment in the business. So they actually do those little things to look after customers and to look after orders and to make sure that things work well because they've got the time and space to do that. They found that um, uh, sick days go down as well. So more people are more happy to work and they get sick less. So there's a lot of really, really amazing things that when you are actually uh, human and humane to (laughs) staff to give them the resources to do what they need to do, they actually do it. It's crazy. And you can still profit on it, but you're doing it ethically. And do you need... $500 million profit a year or will $450 million do? Yeah. 
You know, Amazon's <laughs> Amazon's a great example. They treat a lot of their staff really, really poorly by design. And, you know, I thought Jeff would have a little more perspective when he shot himself into space because he could, like, see the whole planet and sort of see how it all works. Uh, but that was not the case. Um, it was also totally okay for him to go to space and not come back. But that also <laughs> wasn't the case, you know. So, you know, I just think it's really interesting. We can... Um, dismantle what society has taught us and a lot of what society has taught us is inaccurate based on the data mm. and uh, perpetuates that whole concept of we have to be horrible in order to be profitable when we can build businesses on acceptance and kindness. I'm not saying just hand money out left, right and centre, but it's finding that ratio where you can provide staff with what they need and be kind Uh and allow people to earn a livable wage realistically. I mean, a lot of other countries have that, and it's it works beautifully. It works really well. Uh, and, but America seems to be struggling with it. Parts of Australia seem to be struggling with it as well. And uh, parts of the UK are struggling with it too. So, you know, but then we look at Scandinavian countries, and they, they have that concept as well. There's some countries that are even moving to a four-day work week because that's, based on data, even more efficient again. Mm -hmm. And they're finding with a four-day work week, uh, more work is getting done and staff are happier and they have their own life and their own thing going on and it's great for everyone. So, you know, everyone's taught to be scared of things that are new or different. So we hang on to things even if they're inefficient and don't work. So part of it is going, okay, how can I move out of my ego in that fear space and go, hey, sure, um, my staff need three meals a day to survive. What a crazy idea. How about we make sure they, they can afford three meals a day? You know, my staff can't afford a car to come to work. Hey, here's a crazy idea. Why don't I pay them a livable wage so they can get to work on time without relying on public transport if they don't have to? You know, all these sort of, how do I empower the individual to be the best that they can be to not only help them and society, but also my business? There's no downside in that. Totally. I think that we have too many people in this country for the small faction of government to try to govern us all at the same time. It's It's... You know, you you can do all these tests and run these numbers and take polls about demographics, but unless you got boots on the ground that actually, you know, like, you know, it's almost like undercover boss. Unless you actually, you know, run those streets and, you know, get down and dirty with like your, empl your employees or, you know, your constituents or, you know, everyday people, the people that you see or hear about you know, that, you know, bring home less than, you know, 20,000 a year, people that, that survive off tips that, you know, basically lost everything when the world shut down, you know, those people, unless you understand that, then you'll realize that your statistics and everything seem great on paper, but down here with the rest of us mere mortals, it's not working out. And no matter how mm -hmm. many, you know, 
second tries you or third attempts or fourth attempts or the constant attempts that you put out there is never gonna make a difference. Sure, you can you can put a band-aid on it, but it's still gushing blood, you know? Band-aid on a bullet wound. Not gonna work. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. you know, I think that So here in Australia we don't do tips. Really? Because we pay because we pay everyone properly. We don't need to. And when you buy something, uh, that's the price. If it's got a price tag on it, that's the price, including tax, including everything. So if I go and buy a meal, I don't have to budget for 10 or 15% as a tip mm-hmm. because I know that all of the staff are paid correctly whether the store is empty or full. So tips are a problem because the individual waitress or waiter in in the cafe or restaurant isn't in charge of the marketing for the business. Mm-hmm. So if you market your business poorly, the staff that are working there on tips have zero influence on how many people walk in the door. So their income is based on the effectiveness of the business's marketing strategy. Because once people get in the door, sure, they can do some stuff, but you're in you're basing their income on how well the marketing is done. And we, you know, we don't, we don't do that here because if you turn up to work, you get paid. That's how it works. And you get paid well. So in your opinion, what's some things that you believe Australia does right that other countries do wrong and vice versa? Oh, we do a lot of stuff wrong here. And I think that um, it's a case of when we look at what's right and what's wrong, it's not about a destination. It's about whatever the next step is. Mm -hmm. So I think that, for example, uh, we do, we have the potential to do um, green energy Mm -hmm. way better than a lot of places, but we're not there yet. We're still burning coal because we're stupid. (laughs) So... You know, that's something that we could do much better at. The whole concept of uh, our employment laws here and our minimum wages and our working conditions, they're really good. They still need to be way better. And it's not going to kill business. The world is not going to end. It's going to be a gradual transition to um, everyone being better, safer and healthier in their workplace and more productive, you know? So in Australia, we've still got a long way to go. However, our current laws are still way better than most of the minimum working conditions in the States. Uh-huh. Uh, we have universal health care. So my health care is not tied to my workplace. And if I get stuck, I can go to a hospital and I'm not going to walk out with a crippling bill of $100,000 that I need to pay off on my minimum wage and tips. That just doesn't doesn't happen. And I think healthcare is, providing universal healthcare is a, again, the cheapest way to do healthcare properly for a population because you get a lot of that preventative stuff happening, which is really amazing. Um, so yeah, healthcare... Uh, although we still have politicians that are trying to dismantle our healthcare system uh, because there's a lot of 
um, providers that are paying lobbyists a lot of money to try and do that. But universal healthcare, I think, is a wonderful thing that we do he- better here than you guys do in the States. Uh, what else do we do? Our chicken's terrible. Your chicken is amazing. <laughs> uh, I also think that your street parades mm. in the States, way better than our street parades here. That Macy's parade, the Thanksgiving parade thing that happens, like, holy crap, that's amazing. <laughs> you got like inflatable things and all sorts of stuff. That's <laughs> wild. Uh, Las Vegas, you guys do gambling way better than we do. <laughs> We've got a couple of fun places, but nothing like Las Vegas. Uh, what else? Uh, we don't we don't do guns here. Mm-hmm. And uh, crazy crazy thing, uh, less people die, courtesy of guns, because <laughs> yeah. there's no guns, <laughs> and. That's a good thing. So we, we're, our uh, our murder rate is is very very low, uh, and our um, you know we have more more policemen that shoot themselves in the foot than we do uh, police that shoot people. So that's a good thing. Um, like America, we treat our uh, our First Nations people uh, very poorly. And although we treat them better now, we still have a long way to go. So I think we're we're about par there. Uh, although uh, I'm I'm not quite sure about the the stats in the states, uh, but here in Australia, the our First Nations people sadly uh, still have a lower life expectancy than everyone else, and that's something that I think we need to aggressively uh, and proactively work on because that's just not good enough um yeah geez what else i think we do beer better here and i think we do coffee better here i think we do coffee differently here so you guys do a lot of um like you got starbucks terrible Terrible. (laughs) but filter coffee love filter coffee good filter coffee bang up for it over here we do flat whites and espressos um beautifully we have so many roasters and so many different types of coffee we're like the self-proclaimed coffee capital of the world so you can Mm. get just about any any type of coffee here which i love so that's the only problem that i have when i go to the states is i go uh (laughs) there's gonna be starbucks with sugar in it or it's going to be um you know filter coffee of varying qualities so yeah so there you go. That's my uh, my quick roundup of shit that we do well and poorly. <laughs> well, at least you didn't get any percolated coffee. That's a little different. <laughs> oh, yeah, it is. It is. That's very different. Very different. <laughs> you uh, know, there's also that siphon coffee as well that just tastes like coffee-flavored tea. Mm. That's It's fun to make. Just It's not as strong as some of the other stuff that I prefer. You know, the what's funny about coffee for me is i only ever drink it um when i like you know work inside like an office like if i'm in the building all day i i, I drink it out of uh you know i don't say habit just the fact that it's there you know yep. what i'm saying so if it's there and you know it's early in the morning i'll have it but when i'm home 
Or if I, you know, I'm working like I am now when I'm not in the building all day, I I don't even drink it. I don't think about it. You know, sometimes I might have a craving for it and I, you know, I might stop and get like a hot chocolate or something just because I was craving coffee because I smelled it. And it's it's something about the smell better more than the taste, you know, but um, I will admit coffee does smell better than it tastes most of the time. mm -hmm. Most definitely. Yeah. But then for me, I don't do, um, I don't, I don't drink soft drinks. So, you know, I don't, I don't have any of those sugary drinks. So if I, it's normally for me, water, beer, or coffee. That's so, good. yeah, so it's, you know, and that's, that's okay. And I normally don't have milk in my coffee as well. So, you know, I think that's kind of better, maybe sort of. A little bit. Less, less sugars, <laughs> less sugars, better, I guess. But um, sugar is sure is tasty. <laughs> I I actually I cut out sodas last year. Yeah. So you know, if I'm not drinking, uh, you know, like some hard liquor, I only drink 100 percent juice or water. Yep. You know, no. Yeah, nice. No. See, that's toast. way better than me. Yeah. Way better. Hopefully, yeah. I will evolve to that stage as well. <laughs> you just gotta, uh, you you gotta read. You know, a lot of people don't read the the cartons. You know, don't get me wrong. You know, Minute Maid, Tropicana, all these places. Uh, you know, even Arizona. You know, they make something that you can grab real quick and it tastes good. But you're hurting yourself in the long run. I told myself years ago that. I don't want to be dependent on pills, you know, when I get up in age because of, you know, drinking poorly when I can, you know, just switch from A to B and be fine, if not better, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, when I'm older, I want to be dependent on fun pills, not yeah. the ones that keep me alive. <laughs> I, want the, I want the choice. <laughs> <laughs> Those blue diamonds. I'm aware. I'm aware. <laughs> I was thinking about that. How bad would that be? I was I rewatched the Matrix because I got the new Matrix coming out. So I rewatched mm-hmm. it. And then I'm just sitting there going, What if Neo was colorblind and he actually picked the wrong pill? <laughs> <laughs> and he's just he's taken it and he's woken up and he's gone, This is not what I wanted at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Morpheus is is commending him for making the right choice and he's like uh, actually, I wanted the other one, but I couldn't tell. On the other one, and if you think if that was the right choice, and I passed this test, good, good for you, Morpheus. And you wake up and you're like, nah, nah, send me back. <laughs> yeah, that would have been something. You know, the movie would have been over in 20 minutes if he he came out that pod and was like, yeah, you know what? Plug me back in. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. When that little thing, I think there's been a mistake here. Can I speak to your manager? <laughs> terrible so let me ask you this ben um what has been uh some of your highlights of uh 2021 so far besides being homebound you know 200 plus days you know look i've got to say i am so pleased that i don't live in a one-bedroom apartment (laughs) (laughs) that's been the biggest highlight and the biggest thing that i am grateful for this year um i'm also really grateful for technology uh, during the pandemic, I built a 
uh, or early on in the pandemic, I built a, a recording studio and a uh, video studio mm-hmm. uh, here. So I've been able to continue working and and do some stuff. So that's been really, really amazing. And I would be totally lost without it. Um, so that's that's been an absolute highlight. I've been very lucky to do and keep doing uh, a lot of corporate work with some really, really big brands over here and some uh, large companies, uh, which has been wonderful. So uh, just changing my mindset to going, okay, now I'm sitting in the studio in front of this camera and I'm on a Zoom call with, you know, a thousand people and going, okay, well, that's kind of similar to being, you know, on stage with a thousand people or 2000 people or whatever. But, um, it's just a, a, a new different. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm very grateful for that. And that's been one of the highlights because without having all that interaction, I'd go stir crazy in lockdown. <laughs> um, and also just appreciating stuff. So if I'm not, I'm not traveling, so I've got weekends and, and days and stuff like that where I'm, where I'm here. Um, I have explored my local town and my local area on foot more than I ever would have previously. So I know where all the parks are. I know where the ducks are uh, and I can feed them with some peas and rice and stuff. And uh, I call that uh, consensual stuffing. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know, I know, I know where all the, uh, I know who all the all the puppies are and all the all the dogs and stuff, and I hug them on the way. So it's wonderful. So I really enjoy that that connection to the area in which I live, which I never would have had otherwise. Uh, was the, uh, the transition from, uh, being on stage to doing virtual performances difficult and, you know, did it take, you know, an, a lot amount of time for you to get comfortable doing it and then like waiting for that response instead of having that instant gratification? Look, it's really hard. Cause when you're on a zoom call with like a thousand people, there is no response. Um, and if someone ticks the little thumbs up icon, it's not the same as applause. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I think it took, um, look, my biggest stress. So when I'm live, mm-hmm. um, there's, you know, I kind of, I know what I'm doing and I can just sort of turn up and do my thing. Whereas if you're doing it in a studio, particularly if you own the studio mm-hmm. and you run everything here, there's a lot of this extra stress that comes from, is my tech going to work? Is anything going to die or, you know, um, reset or do anything like that? So there's a, a little bit of extra stress there. And I, when I do film stuff or TV stuff, I would normally have a crew of, you know, me and maybe one or two other people on a small crew. Whereas now it's just me set up with the camera there and, all my monitors and gear hooked up and you know, it's, uh, it's a little bit lonely in that sense, but it's also, um, compared to the alternative of not doing it, uh, way better. And it's also another skill that I've had. I mean, I've had the opportunity to talk to 
uh, and do shows, um, you know, in New Zealand and India, the US, and also do, courtesy of the technology, you know, wonderful interviews with people that I would never have met before, like yourself. I appreciate that. <laughs> so this is this is the equivalent of me traveling. I don't need a passport for it, but I still get an insight into the world of uh, a, a varied array of really wonderful people. So I'm very, very blessed. I think that a lot of people miss that and they don't recognize it until, you know, someone points it out to them in hindsight. Like, do you know that you just spoke to someone you probably would have never met, you know, just a, a year or two prior, you know, mm -hmm. or I, I love like watching like my favorite comedians when they do their shows and they, you know, they uh, appreciate the fact that, you know, the pandemic gave them a reason to slow down and the people that they used to say hi and bye to through, you know, brief little conversations, they got close by having like actual, you know, elongated talks, you know, via shows or games that they played and things like that. And it's just mm -hmm. like, you know, you know, it, it, it always say that 2020 was the best worst thing to happen to a lot of people. So you got to actually appreciate what you have and, you know, what you're given at the same time, like you might have lost uh, you know, a certain amount of money, but you might have gained a new admiration for your life partner or, you know, all that time that you missed not being able to catch up with your kid and see what they got going on and, you know, strengthen that bond, all, all these things, all these little small miracles that some people would, you know, call it are happening around you. And now you get to see it because you're around it all the time, you know? Yeah. You know, so appreciate that and not only appreciate that show other people that hey i recognize this did you you know like like the comedians do you know you might you might be off put you know later on but they pointed out something out to you that you see and you recognize every day but you never gave it two seconds of thought past what someone said or you know a, a finger click you know mm. so it's 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 all types of things that you know people literally take for granted every day and it's not out of habit or i shouldn't say it's not out of habit it's not out of you know a thought it's just from you know living life according to how you know your environment dictates it which is really in your control absolutely absolutely Oh, the wisdom that I have learned uh, and and experienced today on on this call has been amazing. Thank you so much, Big T. You've been. Uh, I thought it was I would be sharing stuff, but I've actually learnt so much more, and it's just such a joy to speak to you. I appreciate that. You know, I um, I've never been complimented before, so I'm feeling kind of weepy over here. <laughs> <laughs> No, but uh, no, seriously, uh, no, Ben, I uh, I appreciate you for joining me today, man. This is this has been dope, and I think that uh, we definitely got to do a part two of this, man. You know, totally. I'm up for it. I'm I'm up for chatting with you anytime. And uh, next time, uh, we can compare beers and hard liquors.
Okay. All right. Yeah, I, I can uh I can schedule it, that. <laughs> either that or a juice box or two. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh dealer's choice. How about that? Sounds good. I'll have I'll have both on deck. <laughs> <laughs> Actually you can mix the two together if we had tequila. Yeah, I I try not to get too too fruity with my liquor, you know. I like to, yeah. you know, know exactly what concentration I have in my body. So, you know, I always uh was told that uh once it starts tasting um like juice, um you're going down. Like within a few hours like once you know a buddy of mine used to say you know once that liquor starts tasting like water um yeah i'll see you tomorrow because <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to remember anything after that and that's true it's so uh, true okay i i'm just just writing that one down <laughs> <laughs> oh man but uh not, uh back to what i'm saying um uh, thank you so much for joining me today, uh, Ben. Uh, why don't you please let my audience know uh, where they can find you at, uh, all your handles and anything you want them to check out. I, it's super easy. It's been a, a, such a joy to chat. Um, everything me is bensorensen1.com and all of my social handles are bensorensen1 because some other bastard took Ben Sorensen. <laughs> so I'm now Ben Sorensen1 on everything. So yeah. Oh man. Look, that... Follow me, come chat to me. Really happy to make some new friends. And you can come the crazy ride that is my social media. Oh man. Yes, yes. Uh I believe it's uh it's Tuesdays when you do the uh the contest. Oh uh, yeah, we we do I uh, I drop a trivia question every Tuesday. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, there'll be there's always a different question, and you can answer it, and you could win nothing. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I love about it. <laughs> and no prizes. It's all about the knowledge. <laughs> oh man, I I have uh, laughed myself uh, silly over here enjoying this conversation and getting to have a you know a very uh you know i i can say that it is a cornucopia of ideas that was exchanged and you know i you know um learning uh someone uh life and experiences you know these are the things that i think makes us great you know learning our differences and through our differences, we realize our similarities. And without those, you know, we can't be people because that's what mm-hmm. people are. People are, you know, you and me and everyone else that you see on TV. And I didn't mean to make that rhyme. It just, it just happened that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I definitely feel greater for having met you and having spent uh this time with you and i can't wait to do it again soon most definitely most definitely uh ladies and gentlemen i am your host land over legend aka big t and this has been another installment of the i can't make this up podcast that's i can't with a k make this up podcast you can find me everywhere podcasts are available i'm also on facebook youtube twitter and instagram please do me a favor do do yourself a favor 
and follow my guest Ben Sorensen's, I guarantee you'll find something, some piece of content, some piece of information that he's putting out there that will definitely, uh, you know, make your life a little bit better, if not happier, you know, in my personal opinion. And if you think I'm wrong, leave a comment on this video on one of my pieces of content and I'll block you. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Until next time. Peace. (laughs) I can't make this up. Being the wing man got me punched in the face by this crazy chick. I can't make this up. Gave this cool old man to ride home. Now I'm harboring the fugitive. I can't make this up. Pin between the fat chick and the speaker. Now my shirt smell like her backside. I can't make this up. It's all bad cause my man about to get stabbed in his hand over french fries. Bad. And I'ma let the land over legend do the rest. I'm out.